The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. Hey, if you're loving this podcast, you are really going to love my next book, Master of One, which will be released on January 21st. But hey, here's the deal. If you pre-order the book, we have a pretty amazing incentive for you to do so. If you pre-order the book, you're going to enter to win the trip of a lifetime for you and a friend, the friend of your choice. You guys are going to go on a seven-night European cruise on Royal Caribbean, not some crappy cruise line, right? We're going to send you guys on on a good cruise line. You're going to tour La Sagrada Familia, the world's largest church, which has been under construction for more than 100 years and is one of my favorite stories that I tell in the book. And then you're going to meet me for dinner in Barcelona, which maybe you don't want to, but I really want to go to Barcelona and hang out with you. So you can enter to win that amazing trip right now at jordanrainer.com after you pre-order your book. So, hey, with the book's release coming up in just a few weeks, I thought you guys might want to hear from some of the people whose stories I told in the book. So, obviously, I can't interview Anthony Gowdy, the architect of La Sagrada Familia, but I can bring some interviews to you from some other Christian masters whose stories I told in the book. And today, you're going to hear from one of my favorite sources from Master of One. It's He's a guy by the name of Jeff Heck. He's the co-founder and CEO of Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta. Monday Night is incredible. They got two locations in Atlanta. They're opening up one in Birmingham, but they got distribution all over the Southeast. It's some of the best beer that I've had in the Southeast. Jeff is super interesting. He's a Harvard grad, moved into private equity after college, was an executive pastor at a church, and he had some buddies while they were at a Bible study started brewing beer at home. It turned into a side hustle for these guys, and eventually it's grown into a pretty significant business. Along the way, Jeff decided to put all of his eggs in that basket of Monday Night Brewing, and he's just one of the most interesting people I know, but he also has one of the most fully formed theologies of work I think you'll ever hear. So this guy's running a brewery day to day, has this incredibly well-formed theology of work. I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from him. Jeff and I recently sat down to talk about C.S. Lewis's love of beer, the phenomenal increase in productivity that Jeff experienced when he went from working on multiple things to focusing on mastering one. And we talked about why, as Monday Night Brewing's slogan says, quote, weekends are overrated. I literally have a t-shirt from Monday Night Brewing that says weekends are overrated. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Jeff Heck. Jeff Heck, thanks for hanging out with me. It's my pleasure. Good to be yeah, with man. you. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. It's been a while since we talked. I mean, people don't realize how long it takes to publish a book, but we probably talked 
a year ago that sounds about right yeah sounds something about right. like that and the book's even out yeah right. <laughs> the book's coming out in about a month now so hey my team found something on your blog as we were researching for this Uh-oh. conversation that I, lo- I yeah i know you should be scared <laughs> i love this line so you're talking about kind of the founding of monday night you said not only are we christians that drink and brew beer but we plan on making a career out of it uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. So, do you have a good story of like, and don't name names, but like how y'all's love of beer has rubbed some Christians in the Bible Belt the wrong way? You know, it's been surprising how infrequently that has happened. Usually, they don't show up to breweries or tell you uh, or know <laughs> who you are. They've shunned you. Actually, one of the places where that we bumped up against that tension has been more actually with some of our like extended family who have a different perspective on on alcohol than we do, who love the Lord and are believers. And I think there it's just a matter of, you know, it's not something we bring up in conversation, but we also don't, I don't, I don't hide it. And it's never come up as a, as a, as a point of tension um, that's or good. anything. So, well, that's what Paul commands, right? Exactly, that, yeah. that issues like this are not a point of contention. I always think of C.S. Lewis's quote. I'm always, I'm always encouraged by C.S. Lewis's great theology of beer. He talks about beer a lot, actually. <laughs> like I was, I was realizing this lately, right? My favorites, the sun looks down on nothing half so good as two friends talking over a pint of beer. I Do you know that. that one? I don't know that one. You, you got to put it up on Monday night. I was What's, at that, Eagle. What's that from? I don't know what it's from. I think it was one of his letters that Lewis wrote to one of his friends. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He was just, they were really, they used to hang out at this bar in Oxford. Yeah. Called the Eagle and Child. Have you been, by the way? No, I haven't. But the Inklings. The Inklings. So Tolkien and these guys used to hang out at the Eagle and Child, which is super cool. But by the way, has the worst beer I've ever had (laughs) in my entire life. Like, like if, if they had only had good beer, they would have loved it, you know, all the more. I live in Tampa where we have some amazing beer, some amazing yeah. craft breweries. I'm curious, softball question to start out with, have you had Tampa beer? And if so, what are some of your favorites? Oh man, you're going to make me put my foot in my mouth. I'm trying to remember if this was actually in Tampa or nearby, but Angry Chair, are you familiar with Angry Chair? I love, okay, my favorite beer in the world is from Little Tiny Angry Chair Brewery. Do you remember what the beer was? I had, I probably had like, a, I had a flight, so I tasted four or five different ones. And they were, they were all really great, but there was a big stout that was fantastic that I had. There's a beer there called Two Pump Chump. It's like a hazelnut coffee porter oh, nice. that tastes like you're drinking Nutella. It's wonderful. You can't go wrong is, with Nutella. You can't go wrong with Nutella. My kids are convinced that everything should have Nutella on it. <laughs> I would agree. And so would every European. That's the yes, best part exactly. of Europe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, hey, Jeff, so a good portion of our listeners are entrepreneurs, right? And if there's one thing entrepreneurs love, it's a good founding story of a company. Monday Night Brewing has a pretty great founding story. Tell us how you guys got this thing started. Yeah. Well, I think like any good entrepreneurial story, or a calling story, it found us. <laughs> so we were, myself and my two co-founders, Joel and Jonathan, we were in a small group Bible study about, gosh, it's been 13 or 14 years ago. And we all didn't know each other very well. There were probably 10 guys in our mid-20s getting up at 6 a.m. on Friday mornings to get together and talk about things of substance in our lives and the Lord. And and we realized we didn't know each other very well, at least certain pockets of us didn't. So we thought, what better way to get to know each other than brew a little beer in the backyard? So Monday night was the night that was open. So we fired up the turkey fryer and got the old homebrew kit out that one of our wives had given us for Christmas and uh, gave it a go. And it tasted first batch tasted directionally like beer, like enough <laughs> enough like beer that we we did it again. 
And before long, we were making reasonably good beer that other people would drink. And we were also making more beer than a Bible study in good conscience could consume by itself. So we started inviting friends, neighbors, coworkers over to the house, and it became a weekly ritual. My two co-founders and I, Joel and Jonathan, we really took the, took the lead on organizing things and coming up with recipes and figuring out the process. We geeked out on it and loved it. And we also loved the vibe that started emerging. So we got to a place after a few months where anywhere from... 30 to 40 to 50 people would come by the house on a Monday night just to hang out, drink beer. Some people actually didn't even like beer that much, but they were just there for the community. And I think that was the thing where we really began to fall in love with brewing and with beer. It's not just the beer itself, but the conversations, the relationships that happened in what felt like a very safe place for, for these folks. So the three of us were working white collar jobs. Jonathan is a marketing consultant, myself in private equity, and Joel is an operational consultant. And so we had these really complementary skill sets of operations, marketing, finance, and strategy. And so we kind of looked at each other and said, let's just at least put a business plan together and see where this goes. And so four years later, in 2011, we launched the business. Jonathan quit his day job as a marketing guy and became the AR clerk, salesperson, CEO, the everything man. And it was off to the races. So about 18 months later, we things were going well enough that we raised some money and built our own, built out our own facility. Joel quit his day job in 2013 when we opened. And then about uh, about three years ago in 2016, I was the last one man to fall and left my job in private equity after 10 years and have been here with them, run the business day to day since then. And so I want to get back to your story in a second and talk about kind of the experimentation in your career, which I think is super interesting. And, and uh, we talk about in Master of One in the book that's about to come out. Yeah. But first, I didn't realize you guys raised money. Who'd you guys raise from, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, friends and family. It was really, yeah, closer friends and family. Yeah. That's how most entrepreneurs raise that, and that debt. first round. And, and debt. lots of, of SBA loans. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in a predictable business like a brewery, that's to be expected. So, all right, you told us the story and the trajectory of Monday night. Let's talk about you. So your story is like fascinating to me. So you graduate Harvard Business School or did you go there for undergrad? undergrad? Yeah. Okay. So you graduate undergrad, you were in a band. We share that in common. So you're trying to figure out what in the world you're going to do with your life. Like what were your options graduating Harvard and then kind of take us from graduation day all the way until the point where you committed to Monday night full time? Oh man. All right. So my settle options, in. settle my, in folks. My yeah. options. I will, I will say these were the things I was kicking around in my head was trying to decide whether I should take my band on the road, go to seminary, go to medical school, or consider something in business, which I knew enough about to know that business was a thing. Uh, <laughs> I, my, I grew up, my parents were both in, in the healthcare field. So I didn't have a lot of, uh, of a lot of context for that. So, but I did an internship in after my junior year of college in at, at the Home Depot here in Atlanta and where I live now. And so it gave me a little bit of curiosity about that. So as I kind of looked at those options, I sort of decided I was engaged and I didn't really, the idea of being on the road full time with a trying to cut it in music and living out of a van and eating, you know, crystal all the time didn't sound particularly appealing and Some, somewhat appealing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, maybe <laughs> that's right. I can get crystal elsewhere. And, and I think the reality was there were other things that were interesting to me. And I, and I felt like music is one of those things I love. I still lead worship at my church every, almost every Sunday, but it seemed like the kind of thing that if you really want to do it, you have to be a hundred percent in. And I just, it wasn't convinced that was the case. Medical school sounded like kind of a, a drag. And my dad is a, is a physician. The idea of what medicine is, I think I was really captivated by what that profession is. It's so, so clearly has so many ties to, 
to the gospel and to serving people and to caring for people. But I just found myself, didn't, I just didn't have the passion that I thought it would really take to, to have the perseverance to get through school and, and really have that sustained vision for what that looked like. And in seminary, I, I, love, I love theology, I love people, but I also had this analytical part of my brain that I felt like I really would be missing out on if I wasn't and at least didn't try something else out. So, so let, me, uh, let me pause your story there. So you have all these different interests. I think we're very similar in this. We have lots of different things that we're interested in, but you were kind of looking for something to really go all in on. It sound, as we were talking about your story for Master of One, it seemed like all throughout your career, you were looking for the culmination of all these interests and how all these things could come together in one or fewer vocational things. Is that right? <laughs> that, that's fair. I think the challenge was I had, there was like no job in the world that could possibly put all those things together. So was I going to be like the business guy, pastor, rock star doctor on the side? Uh, so uh, they all required a tremendous amount of commitment and a, and a tremendous amount of, and, and I felt like I'd I didn't know what I wanted to commit to. For that reason, when I was interviewing for jobs on the business side, I was an absolutely horrible interview because someone would say like, well, tell me why you want to work here. And I'd be like, oh, because everything's interesting, which is the worst answer in an interview ever. But I've come to find out now that I do interviews myself. Now that you hire, right? Right, right, right. So I was a ter- terrible interviewer. And turns out, I think the Lord used that providentially because I applied to about 100 jobs. I had a, you know, I had a good GPA from, from Harvard and at a point where the job market was reasonably good. And I applied to 100 jobs and I got a single job offer. And that was to come back and work for the Home Depot in Atlanta, Georgia. So even that role was really experimental. I love that. You, you were basically doing rotations through different departments, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I worked at the corporate office and, and uh, it was called the Business Leadership Program. I rotated through four different departments over two years, had six months in each department and really got it. It was, a, it was a great. It was actually a great fit for me because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got the chance to really be exposed to different areas. So I spent six months in investor relations. I worked six months in a store uh, on the ground in Cartersville, Georgia, uh, about 30 miles north of the city of Atlanta, and worked every single job in the store over the course of six months. My wife always tells people she married the Home Depot stock boy um, who went to Harvard because when we got married, I was doing my overnight shift, you know, loading, stocking, stocking shelves, and then six months in operations, and then six months in mergers and acquisitions. And that really I fell in love with because I felt like it was this really unique combination of finance and analytical work, and also knowing people. If you are acquiring a business, it's not just about the numbers on the page or the the big picture strategy, but it's also about the human beings that are involved with it. So it felt like this really cool marriage of these different parts of myself I've been you know, trying to understand and, and find a way to reconcile in my head and work out in a, in a, in a profession. So your story in Master of One, actually, you're mentioned a couple of times in the book. The, I think the longest story is in chapter five, this idea of like experimentation and exploration in our careers. So when you're at Home Depot, you had the opportunity to do that a lot within one company, right? And so kind of as you're leaving Home Depot, you're starting to get a little bit more focused on what you think your one thing is, right? So you do the M&A thing, the stint, which... I love how you talk about both the analytical side and the people side. It's very much a part of M&A. And then from there, you got a little bit more focus and got into private equity, right? Yep. That's right. So in 2007. And how long did you stay in private equity? So I was there for uh, about nine and a half years. Yeah. And then as you're in private equity, is this when you also started working at the church? So my wife and I were involved in planting a church uh, on the west side of Atlanta and started right around the same time that we that I switched over to to the to the private equity firm. So we were involved with the launch team and I was an elder there and leading worship as a volunteer for most of that uh, that time. But it wasn't until after I left my job in private equity that I was doing some work with the church as well on a, you know on staff. 
So you lead private equity, you're on staff at this church. And is this also when Monday night is starting to take off? So Monday night started. So the timeline was 2013, we opened our own facility. The business really grew very quickly. And 2016 was when I left. So it had really been been growing. And we had gotten to the point where the business was more complex. We were hiring more people. And my partners were are really fantastic startup, get things going kind of guys, which I can do, but, it's, but I'm not as good as they are. And frankly, it's not some stuff that I'm as passionate about as they are. So when we got to the, how do we scale this business and how do we scale our culture? How do we think about bigger picture, strategic growth? That's when I got excited and they were like, have at it. We'd love you to come and, and take, take, uh, take that off our plates. But we weren't really sure if there was enough for me to do uh, full-time at the brewery. So at the same time, the church was going through a significant growth phase. And I, as an elder, I had um, the pastors, uh, one of my closest friends. And so we were talking and I said, hey, what if I split my time two days a week at the church and three days a week at the, at the brewery, really as a kind of a part-time executive director at the church and thinking through strategy and what's next for our church and, and, and at the brewery doing similar things. What's the next phase look like? So for about a year, uh, maybe a year and a half, I really did that. I'd spend about three days a week at the brewery and two days a week at the church. And over the course of that time at the church, we moved up, relocated our offices. We uh, hired a few new people. We then bought a building and did a capital campaign. And uh, so I was really involved in a lot of that and put some basic processes in place. We had never really had a, a fulsome staff meeting, for example. So just some of the basic things of management that I had learned in my time at private equity that, that weren't particularly hard, but added a lot of value, I think, to the church in that particular phase. So you're splitting your time between Monday night and the church, right? Which is such a fascinating setup for a conversation on faith and work. So you're being stretched between these things, you know, these things that you love, right? But but feel this pull to focus on one of them. And eventually you make the decision, you're going to put all your eggs in Monday night's basket. You're going to be solely focused vocationally on this thing. Do you regret making that decision? I mean, maybe that's a silly question. Otherwise you wouldn't still be doing this, but like talk through that decision and how you thought about making that, making that call. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think I love both of them deeply. I'm still, you know, very, very involved with the, with the church. It's where my closest friends and community really are. And so I think one of the things it was, it was really a, a couple fold. One was, you know, there's a lot of thought going back and weighing pros and cons. On the one hand, uh, there were a lot of things about the same, some of the same reasons why I kind of didn't end up going to seminary. We're kind of think those were in my head a little bit. Um, I love the church. I love, I love helping make the organization run better, but also I'm, I'm really mostly passionate about the sort of the, not the institutional component of the church, but the, but the mission part of, of what the church is. So I felt over time I was kind of losing a little bit of, of steam. But I think the biggest thing that happened was that as I step back, I, uh, David Brooks writes a lot about this around the idea that the biggest decisions we make, the things that really shape our lives and our character are, are, are the commitments that we make. And a lot of times, you know, he talks about vocational commitments and oftentimes those things are not things we choose, but things that choose us and that happen to us. And so I looked around and I said, I have two partners who have spent um, years investing, you know, giving up a lot of opportunity in their own careers to do this. I'm perfectly equipped, I think, to do my, to give it my best, at least of the three of us to run this, this business in that capacity as CEO. And I also have investors and personal guarantees for our debt and employees who are relying on us to do things. I thought like, I don't really have a choice. And actually it was in that moment that I felt a tremendous amount of freedom rather than sort of duty and obligation. I think sometimes we have this idea in our culture that, you know, that when things become really clear that we just have to do something, that that somehow 
uh, constraining. For me, it's really been almost the opposite. I, I felt a deep sense of freedom and, and almost not having to make the choice, but having the choice made for me. That's really interesting. I was talking to somebody the other day about something similar and this idea of you know this person was trying to choose between two career paths, right? And we were talking about this idea of choosing the path that only you can really choose, right? And the work that you're most uniquely suited to do. So for, for example, I have an example of this in my career. I was running, a lot of people know I'm chairman of the board of a company, a venture-backed tech startup called Threshold 360, right? I ran the business for two and a half years. and But the moment I decided, okay, I'm going to focus on my writing full-time instead of running this venture, part of that calculus was, you know what? There are a lot of people out there who can run this business as well, if not better than I can, but nobody is raising their hand and saying, I'll write 20 books on the topic of faith and work. Thus, ergo, and I already had this audience building behind it, I'm kind of uniquely qualified to do that or uniquely willing to do that job. So that made the decision easy. Was that kind of what, what was going through your head? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things I realized, I think, was that there are people who can come in and be executive director of a church. And so we, so I committed, I kind of told them about, uh, like, I think it was, it was probably nine months before our new executive director started. I said, here, here's where I'm, where I'm leaning and I'm committed to being here and helping this transition as long as it takes. And then we found a great guy who frankly is more qualified to do the job than I was. And, and at the same time at the brewery, it's really hard to find someone, especially in a founder owned business who can come in and step into that role. So absolutely. Yeah, so for sure. we talked about this when we sat down to talk about the book, but I'm a big believer in this idea that there's a disproportionate advantage to having all of your attention on one thing at a time, right? So for the sake of easy math, I know you didn't work 40 hours a week when you were doing the church of the brewery, but for the sake of easy math, let's say you're working 24 hours a week at the brewery and 16 hours at the church. The difference in coming to Monday Night Brewing, I would assume, is not 16 hours, right? You're significantly more productive than what those 16 hours would account for. Did you find that to be true? Absolutely. One of the things I found was that when I was doing both both jobs that would was that depending on the season that we were in what would keep me up not keep me up in a negative way or with worry but where my mind was going to my creative energy in those little moments of you know morning and evening and when you're in the shower uh, they were torn sometimes one some some weeks or some months they would be on focused on one and some on the other and so my kind of my I have a really active mind and my mind's always going different places and my my creative spare energy was was pulled in two different directions. And I found a huge difference in being fully present here at the brewery that I think one, all my creative energy and in my vocational creative energy is focused here. And second, my relationships with people have gotten a lot deeper and I have a lot more margin for figuring out and feeling out the things that are going on and learning and absorbing, you know, not just the tangible data or the numbers, but Hey, how are people doing? How's the team gelling? What's the culture like? And frankly, when I was working three days a week, I didn't have the margin for that. I had to come in and knock stuff out and get out. That was that added value, but it didn't add all of the value that I could really add, which I'm a very relational person. And so having some margin where I can, you know, get a feel for the place and you know, have that softer space that is a little mushier was deeply helpful. I talk a lot about this. That white space mentally, the times in the shower, the times when you're doing dishes, the times when you're on a walk, that's when like real work actually happens, Absolutely. right? It's actually not building the spreadsheet. It's having the margin to make the creative connections between ideas for what needs to go into the spreadsheet, right? Yep. Yeah. And so having all your attention to one thing is like really, really critical to like making that happen. So 
in chapter eight of Master of One, I actually used a quote of yours to kind of wrap up the second part of the book because I thought it was so good. I, I talked about one of Monday Night Brewing's core values, fight for excellence, which I love, I love, I love. If I had a tattoo, it might be, it might, it might be fight for excellence. Why did you guys choose to describe the pursuit of excellence as a fight? I think because our default setting as fallen human beings is to take the easy way out and to sort of abdicate responsibility for things or do as much as we can in order to get kind of the approval of other people and kind of help us kind of coast. So it's really instead of instead of kind of losing yourself in the, the search for what is for the truth, it becomes an exercise in in just kind of finding, checking the box, doing the sufficient amount of work to kind of clear the hurdle for what I'm obligated to do in this job. And for us in our culture, we wanted it to be characterized by by something that was more deep, sort of deep seated than that, which is a real curiosity about like what's happening here and what's possible. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do actually with with this theological construct of the already and the not yet that on on the one hand we live in a in a fallen world so we are not yet experiencing the full consummation of what the lord has uh, has planned for the for the world and for redemptive history and on the other hand we have there are significant ways in which it's already broken through and i think fighting for excellence means that you're living in the middle of that tension you're sort of acknowledging things aren't perfect and at the same time, you're acknowledging that the Lord has gifted you and whatever role that you're in to, to seek to bring about more of, of what the kingdom is really all about. I love that. That's so good. So can you think of a practical example, like let's take from the last month, right, of how you've seen you or your co-founders or your team fight for excellence within the business? Like help us wrap around, wrap our head around what that looks like practically. Yeah. So we were looking actually at adding a, another tap room. Had an opportunity that felt, and their tap rooms are a, are a significant part of our our business, and they're they're really they uh, they, they help grow our brand. They're they really help they really they help grow the brand. They're good uh, revenue streams and profitability profit streams. So we were looking at a, at a particular site. Everything seemed to make a lot of sense on paper. You know, good deal, great space, good location, and so we were kind of leaning towards it. But there were a couple of us that had some hesitations. We, this includes the founders and our kind of executive team, three or four other folks, and so rather than just kind of have a meeting, figure it out. We all got in the car. We drove two hours to this spot. We ran a bunch of pro formas. We got them to send us sales data from the business that was there before. We talked to other, we networked our way to figure out how the other breweries in that area were doing. And then we stepped back and said, okay, what else do we have on our plate? What's the opportunity cost? And we ended up saying that we're, we're not going to do it. So sometimes I think fighting for excellence means fighting your way to the conclusion, whatever it might be. And we also had some, uh, I won't say fighting because it was healthy, but some very healthy kind of tension and conflict with us to sort of, because we were on different uh, sides of the, of the decision. So, I mean, one of the things we talk about is we want to be a place that's, so actually fight for excellence for us is sort of three components. It's attention to detail, decision, data-driven decision-making, and then prioritization and accountability. So we kind of look at how does this fit into the broader story of what we're, or you know, picture of what we're trying to accomplish. And in order to fight for excellence in the things you're already committed to, it also probably requires you to say no to a lot of really good opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that we do on our team is 
our executive team sits down once a quarter and we go through and uh, we put everything we, we think we need to get done for the quarter on a big table. And it's usually 25 things. And the goal is among the seven of us, we're allowed seven priorities for the quarter. And so we force rank them, we fight over them, we argue over them, and we say, all right, these are the seven things that we are focused on for the quarter. There are other things that are on the list, but they're going to be deprioritized, and, if, and we're, we're about these seven things for the next quarter. I love that. So how do you force rank those? What's the criteria you guys use to force rank those, those items? We, we fight for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody... It's very scientific. So actually what we do is we start with everyone gets post-it notes and you write down your... You write each, uh, each idea you have down. So everybody ends up having seven to 10 notes. And then somebody will say, well, I have open a new tap room. And then we go and then we say, all right, who else has opened a new tap room? So if five people say yes, we know that's a priority. So usually two or three of them are just really clear. And then we just debate. We really do. We get into it. We debate. We talk about what the what are the opportunities for the business. And then we talk about our purpose statement and our core values and say, what which of these things are going to help us further our purpose statement, which is deepen human relationships over some of the best beer in the country. So that kind of serves as a filter for making those decisions as well. I love it. And we're going to get to that core mission, uh, hopefully in this conversation. But hey, first off, your Monday Night Green, Brewing is growing super quickly, right? How are you guys maintaining those standards of excellence as the business scales? I mean, part of it's got to be being disciplined about saying no to things and taking on few things. But what else are you guys doing to maintain those standards of excellence as the business grows? Yeah, I think, I mean, it starts really with, with people. So I probably spend 50% of my time on people-related stuff. Hiring, job descriptions, organizational structure, coaching, my direct reports, meetings with our team. And that's a huge part of it because we're big enough now that we're now relying on other people to carry out the vision. And, uh, and so we need to make sure that they've got, we have the right people in the right seats with the right tools to do the job. So uh, one of the things we just started doing, we just did a, a bit of a shift and have some, some new managers. And so I've spent probably... I don't know, 30 hours putting together a new manager training program that we'll roll out in October. So things like that where we're investing in people um, to give them the tools they need to do the job is is a huge part of it. Hiring's the most important job you do, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I told my team that all the time as I was running Threshold. It's like, most important thing you do is not go to meetings. It's hire the right people so that you can have less meetings. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what's a typical day look like for you from sun up, the moment you get out of bed, to the moment you go to sleep, what does your day look like? Man, there's some things that are consistent and there's some things that are all, all over the place. So the consistent things, usually my son, my 10-year-old son wakes up at six o'clock on the nose, sometimes at 5.30 and comes storming into my bedroom. So usually it's, we've got four kids, 10, nine, seven, and two and a half. So it's chaos in my house for the first couple hours of, uh, of, of wake, of awakeness. And then I'm usually in the office between seven and eight. I try to get in enough so that I have some time to to read, you know, spend some time with the Lord, spend some time in scripture, spend some time reading something that's really not directly related to work. And then I usually go through our, our numbers. I have a set of like things I'm always checking up on how, what is, what, how's the business doing for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And that really depends. I, I again, about, I'd, I'd say about 70% of my days typically scheduled. I usually come in at uh, 5.30 or 6 on Monday mornings and spend two hours looking at those rocks that we're talking about, those sort of big priorities for the quarter and say, all right, what am I moving forward this week? Um, and then I usually schedule out my, my week, about 70% of my day, I usually try to schedule. And that includes some big chunks of time for deeper work or 
thinking, writing. So yeah, when you say scheduled out, you're not talking about meetings. You're talking about blocks of deep work, right? That's right. I usually have about a day and a half of meetings over the course of the week, mostly on kind of front end of the week. I spend, I have one-on-one meetings with each of my direct reports every week. We have a hour and a half with our management team every, every Monday morning. And that gives me a little more freedom on, you know, the rest of the week to have some more flexibility. And then it's really focusing on, okay, where does the team need work so I can hold those blocks to spend with them or do some more work to support them. And then I'm usually, I usually get home around between 530 and six. I live like five minutes away. So I have zero commute time in Atlanta, which is an enormous blessing. And then it's dinner and chaos and baths and reading and piggyback rides and tears and (laughs) (laughs) lots of tears. And then some time, usually time with my wife, I'd say I usually have something in the evenings. You know, we usually have something in the evenings, you know, two or three days a week. We're both really involved with stuff at the church. My, My wife's involved with the charter school. I'm here in the city where our kids go. Anyway, and there's an occasional thing with the brewery as well. So, yeah. That's great. What are some habits? I'm always curious, like the habits, like keystone habits that that really successful people have that they've done for years. So not the thing you're experimenting with, but the thing that you swear by that you've been doing for, you know, two, three, four, five years. Do you have those? Yeah, I have a handful of them. And, you know, I'm always tweaking them a little bit. But the biggest one is that is that Monday morning time where I have two hours just to look at what are my priorities for this, for this week and for the next few weeks. And uh, usually I try to take one, one full day a quarter to go off site and do that. And so I think that's been deeply helpful because I use my calendar to, to set my priorities. I want that to, you know, and it's hard, it's hard. I'm, I'm not afraid to kind of move things around and change things and reprioritize, but I need to have a default as a more kind of creative all over the place entrepreneur. I have to force myself into a, some sort of a semblance of structure in order to stay, uh, stay focused. And the other is just having some time. I tried, especially in the last several years, having uh, at least some time where I'm, I'm able to just read or think or journal or write about an idea related to work. I've come to realize how, how much I, how that's part of my job. And after, for, for after working in a, in an Excel farm for a long time, where I'm, you know, behind a computer just cranking, 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 the idea that it's productive for me to read and think and reflect on myself, my team, the business, where we're going, to read industry articles, to be really deep in the industry, but also in leadership and management and all these things has been a significant shift in my mindset and in how I spend my time. So I probably use, you know, spend 30 to 60 minutes a day just reading something. Man, that's such good advice. I, I It feels counterintuitive at first, right? So I have this habit as well where I, where I try to have time where I'm just reading and it feels super counterintuitive. You feel really unproductive, but then you start realizing that's some of your most productive time because that's when you're making creative connections and finding new ideas and all those good things. So I love the Monday morning thing. I think that's interesting. So it's basically your weekly review at the beginning of the week. I do a weekly review at the end of the week yep. and I basically have all my weeks themed, right? So I'll have two weeks in a row that are just focused on launching the podcast, right? And then the next three weeks will be focused on, you know, getting ready for the launch of Master of One or whatever it is. So it sounds like you do something similar. You find out what those rocks are ahead of time, maybe a quarter at a time, which is kind of my frequency and then block it all out. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I usually do it Wednesday mornings. I usually have like 30, 45 minutes where I can readjust because our business moves and changes so quickly. It's interesting. It's probably a, a difference between your work and my work is that mine's really dynamic. And I think that's the thing about having a system is it's got to be work for you and it has to work for the context of like, what is your job? And that's why I've played around with things for so long. 
Yeah, but when I was running Threshold and we were growing as fast as we were, we would do that. So we, we used OKRs, uh, Google's OKR framework to set goals, but we would reset them every 45 days. We would set them on a quarterly basis, but get together kind of midway. Same thing you're, you're talking about for, for the middle of your week, which I really like. So you mentioned your quiet time in the morning. What does it look like for you as you're reading God's word? Like, are you just reading straight through a passage of scripture? Are you journaling? What are your spiritual disciplines? Yeah, I think it, uh, that's probably another one that it's just um, there's certain things that that I have that I'd say I'd try to do consistently every day. And then it just depends on the season. So, so right now, you know, one of some of my foundational things, you know, I, I think it's always good to be spending at least some time in scripture every day. And sometime in prayer every day. I think for me personally, as kind of a type A overachiever, I like to think also, I want, I want at least a significant part of my prayer time not to be just to sit and, and listen rather than talk at God. And so one really influential um, you know, book for me and, and my wife is, uh, is, has been Emotionally Healthy Spirituality um, by Pete Scazzaro. We, we actually have taught the class a couple times at, at our church. And so that he, he talks a lot about the importance of just sitting in God's presence. And so as someone who's an achiever and driven to achieve and perform, I need that regular assurance that like, that is not where my identity is found. And that's not why God is pleased with me. So I think those three components of sometime in scripture, sometime in prayer, and sometime just sitting and being present with the Lord. I'd be lying if I said I did it every single day. And then from there, it just depends on right now I'm in a, in a year long group of four guys. We meet for two hours every week on Thursday mornings. And so we're doing, spending an entire year in the book of Ephesians. So I'm doing other reading in the, in scripture along the way and, and reading a few other books and talking together. So back to Pete's book for a second, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Are you a John Mark Comer fan by chance? Do you I'm know John familiar. Mark Comer? Uh, uh. All right. So he's publishing a book. Actually, it's out now. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, okay. in which he cites Emotionally Healthy Spirituality a lot. It's an exceptional book. Like I cannot recommend it highly enough. In fact, I'll send you a copy. Please do. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's awesome. really, really, really great. And just this belief that you know, in, in sitting in the presence of God and sitting in silence and just slowing down long enough to have our souls catch up to our frenetic lives. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the yeah. other, the other spiritual practice for us that's been so significant is just been a weekly Sabbath. So I think that's been a big shift for us in, in the last three years is, and with little kids, it's hard to do. We're still figuring out how do you, how do you take a day of rest when you have four young children around, but it's been, it's been really helpful. We have some basic kind of rules that we kind of follow, you know, not, you know, not again, they're, they're rules that give us some, a, a sense of freedom, not constraint. And that's life, life giving rules, right? Oh uh, Yeah. Yeah. So we have very similar stories. So we started Sabbathing every Sunday, uh, about three years ago and it's been life changing for me. It's my favorite day of the week, but I actually had the same question for you. How do you Sabbath with young kids? Right? So our rules are basically, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? It's do it as do whatever is life giving, right? Only do things that are really worshipful, really peaceful, really relaxing. But we're parents of, of a five-year-old and a three-year-old. We're always working. And sometimes the most relaxing thing is not <laughs> disciplining my children. So right. like, what does a Sabbath look like for you guys? Yeah. For, so for us, it's typically Saturdays because I lead worship on on Sunday mornings and that we have practice in the morning. So some mornings are usually out. So for us, we do a couple of things we do. One is meals. Like we we prep, try to prep meal. And to be fair, my wife does most of, of that. God bless her. But we don't do no dishes, no making beds. Just let the house gets messy. And so we prepare for that by trying to get the house clean. We do actually do work to prepare to rest. That's really, really important. Yeah, that's a big one. 
And then the kids watch more TV. They don't eat as well. <laughs> and, and then I think it's letting go of that expectation as a parent that this is all about me. And instead, like having a, a posture of like, what is it the Lord has for me today that's different from my typical rhythm? And yeah, and some component of worship and some component of, of play. I mean, I think we like to play. I mean, I, I'll build castles with my kids down in the basement or, you know, go for, take the kids for a run or, a bike ride and just getting out, you know, getting out of the house, going to the pool. We, one of our, our pretty regular traditions is putting a kiddie pool in the driveway and, and having a beer sitting out on the porch uh, while they play in the, in the pool. And I'll put my bathing suit on and jump around with them. You know, it's the little things. And it's, I think that we have this expectation sometimes that Sabbath is going to be like a monastery or like a theme park. I got to go to Six Flags or a monastery. And the reality is like, I'm learning to be content with a kiddie pool and a beer. Yeah, our Sabbaths are like pretty simple, right? So we have some traditions, like we go to our favorite donut shop in town. We have breakfast Cubans. We, we do it on Sunday, right? So we go have breakfast Cubans. We go have our donuts and then we go to church. But yeah, the rest of the day is like pretty simple, right? We hang around the house for the most part. We might take a walk and we share this in common. There's a beer at the end of the day. And I actually reserve, like I'll like buy like more expensive beer, like just for yeah. Sabbath Sunday yeah. and like have a really exceptional beer at the end of the day. Yeah. So yeah, I love that. You know, one other thing we try to do is I, th- I think in the same way that the Sabbath, the Lord looked back and said, it is very good is my wife and I also try to practice just a disposition of gratitude for the work that we have done and the fruit that's been born in the last week. And, and even as we look ahead to the next week of trying to begin our begin and end our week with a disposition of gratitude for what we've done. And sometimes in the middle of the week, we're running around so crazy that it's, it's helpful for us to step back and think, hey, you know, this kid who's been struggling with such and such had a great week this week. Or, hey, here's some great things that happened at work and celebrating and affirming God's work and having the time to, to recognize and, then, and, and praise him for it. I love that. So we're talking about how much we love weekends, right? And one of my favorite things, in fact, I actually tried to order this shirt on MondayNightBrewing.com and it was sold out. I was so disappointed, is Weekends Are Overrated. I love this. And since this is a podcast about helping Christians connect their faith at their work, share about what you guys mean by this awesome tagline, Weekends Are Overrated. Yeah. So we, we saw, I think, two things. One that sort of rubbed us the wrong way about just alcohol and the beer business, but also about people's disposition towards work was one... Alcohol can be seen as kind of an escape from something that's bad, which, you know, obviously is not how the Lord intended for us to use it. And second, that we're kind of living for the weekend and there's so much alcohol in our broader culture that gets consumed on the weekend as an escape from the monotony or boredom or whatever, or the frustration of, of fruitless or challenging work. And we really want to try to, to reframe our work and our beer as something that can be enjoyed on a, on a Monday night which is the notoriously the, known as the worst day of the week, but on, enjoyed on a Monday night with friends and celebrating good work. And so the idea was that, hey, Mondays really are not that bad because work is good and beer is good and relationships are good. And so that was really the origin of that. I love that. By the way, I think we talked about this a while back, but where did you start to really get this? I mean, you, you had this very deep doctrine of vocation and a, a deep understanding of the connection between faith and work. Was it every good endeavor for you that started to make that connection or was it before... 
Yeah, it was, it was actually, we did a, in that Bible study, we did a faith and work study. I read a book called The Other Six Days about 15 years ago that was pretty impactful. Every Good Endeavor, certainly. And then there's been several others for me. One actually pretty early on, it doesn't, isn't directly related, but it's called uh, To Change the World by um, James Davison Hunter, um, who's a, is, is at University of Virginia. And the big theme that caught me there is this idea that, uh, that living out our, our faith and our calling is, is about faithful presence. Is, is the coin, the term that he he used to describe it that we want to be faithfully present in the context where we are, and a big part of that is our vocation and our place. And so the idea of being a, a brewery on the west side of Atlanta, and we live on the west side of Atlanta. We planted a church on the west side of Atlanta. We started, or my wife started a school on the west side of Atlanta, and and so that was very deeply informed by by his book. And then the, the most one of the more recent ones has been uh, Desiring the Kingdom by Jamie Smith, which is another another fantastic one. But I, I love I love reading. Generally, I'm always reading two or three things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So you've mentioned the mission of Monday Night Brewing. Can you articulate it again and then talk about how you've seen that mission kind of play out, this deepening of human relationships? Yeah, so our purpose statement is that we Monday Night Brewing exists to deepen human relationships over some of the best beer in the country. And that really came about from the early days in the garage where we saw these really different kinds of people from pastors to attorneys to neighbors to some people that we had people that come in from out of town for business and then had read our blog and came to the house and uh, connecting over connecting over beer and what we what was fascinating to us was how the beer was not really the point it was the relationships that were happening over that beer and in the absence of something to talk about two very different people can at least talk about how great the beer they're drinking is as a way to break the ice we talk about it too in a city that is very diverse racially, socioeconomically, from where people come from. Beer is sort of this, like this, it just takes down walls. It's sort of this leveler. It's not expensive. It's not wine where you're, it's not snobby. It's not pretentious. It's, it's, it's accessible and, and anybody can have something to say about a beer. As we've grown, that's also translated then into a lot of business decisions. So things like how we lay out our tap room. So we intentionally design our, our seating in our tap room uh, to include long picnic tables to force strangers to sit next to each other and have conversations. And we've had really, really cool things happen from couples that have had their first date and gotten married and then have their weddings here to donating the space to nonprofits uh, for fundraising events and uh, community efforts like neighborhood association meetings, homeowner association meetings. So there's so many things that we can do to facilitate that. And we're always trying to find ways to, to live that purpose out, whether it's a big business decision or an individual relationship that a, a bartender is having with a guest who's coming in the door. I love that. So in Master of One, I, t- I talk about how when we are masterfully good at our craft, whatever that craft might be, entrepreneurship, writing a book, whatever, it tends to make us salt and light. We live out our calling to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's kind of this concept of j- just focusing on excellence first. By doing that, we're often winsome to the world. We're attractive. We're given opportunities to just build relationships and sometimes share our faith explicitly. Have you guys found that to be true? Absolutely. I mean, I think we we want to have a big tent at Monday night where we're an attractive place to work and visit for for people of all kinds of different backgrounds and beliefs. And I think so what we try to try to do is like how do we see the god-given uh, beauty and individuality of every person that we come into contact with and and really see them and coach them or welcome them and use that as a as a foundation. And also I think one of the things for our team especially that, that I've certainly found is that when people are also challenged and called to excellence in a way that is is respectful, is loving, but is also challenges and pushes them, what they find is they're typically capable of more than they thought they were. And that is 
that's deeply encouraging and it's uh, it opens up new kind of perspective on the world and your view of yourself. And it gives you, um, I think to your point, you know, makes you more, your own life more appealing. Yeah, I, th- I think that said, you know, there's a lot of ways in which a pursuit of excellence can be can force you to be blind to, to some things as well. And so when I'm always really careful to check my own motives and to provide lots of channels for feedback so that people feel comfortable raising their hands when something we're doing or a decision we're making or the way someone's being treated is out of line with what I want it to be or what we what we say we believe. So we try to also build in tools of accountability for our team. Right now we just launched like our annual employee engagement survey and it's completely anonymous and we're at one a lot of, we have a lot of questions that we ask about you know, is Monday night's leadership living out our core values? How well do we do that? Where do you see opportunities for us to get better? Because I think the bigger we are and the more successful we are, it also is that much easier to be blind to the places where you think you're being salt and light, but actually you can end up being a significant stumbling block unless you have a humble disposition, which I, I'm always kind of trying to be aware of. Yeah. So this is, I think maybe the number one theme that I saw in the interviews for Master of One was the Christians that I interviewed who are pursuing mastery, always coming back to this concept of humility, right? And humility being kind of the defining mark of people who are really world-class at what they do. It, It takes humility to ask to seek out feedback like that, right? Anonymously. It's not easy. I've read those surveys as a CEO before. Yeah, They're not always great to read. People are not gentle sometimes. People are not gentle (laughs) at all, right? But that's what experts do. Experts regularly seek out feedback, right, from others. So kudos to you guys for doing that. Hey, let me ask you this. What do your prayers look like for the venture? So like, is your... As you're praying about the venture specifically, what are you asking the Lord to do? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different things. Certainly one is you know, pray for individual people who are on our, on our team, especially. But also there are a lot of prayers, frankly, that are for, you know, in, in a growing business, it's very capital intensive. There's a lot of prayers for just stability, for the success of new things that we're launching, for clarity of leadership and vision for myself and my partners and the other leaders on our team. And then just that we would, just for the Lord to show up in through people who believe in him and are not, through that common grace that he has to show people a welcome, hospitable perspective and voice when they come in the door. I tell, tell our, in our training for our bartenders, I tell a story about, about how at the early days in my backyard, there would be people who were there for the first time and they would kind of walk back down this dark driveway and peek around to the garage, which was in the back of the house and say, and, and they had this look on their face that sort of said, am I in the right place? And our job, our team's job is that when you see that person, your job is to say, yes, you're in the right place. And so uh, that's a lot. A lot of my my sort of bullet arrow prayers, so to speak, are help people feel like they're in the right place, and then just be at work amongst not just our team, but also amongst the people who are showing up here. And because a lot of what we do, I mean, what happened in the backyard, and I think what happens in our spaces, our tap rooms, is a lot of times has nothing to do with us. It has has to do with the people who show up and and are getting together together. And then all we're doing is just providing the space and context for them to do that. You're a conduit for human connection, right? right. I love it. All right. Three questions I like to end every conversation with. These are largely selfish, uh, but what books do you gift the most? Like when you're like, like if I look through your Amazon order history, which books have you ordered over and over and over again for people? So the ones that I have given out the most have been Seven Habits, Stephen Covey. Classic, classic. Recently, two others have been Radical Candor by Kim Scott familiar with that one. And that, I love that because the, the basic premise is, is truth and love effectively. And then the other recently has been The Culture Code by Dan Coyle. Hmm. Great, I haven't read it. 
Great book. I've got our whole executive team reading that one right now. So he talks about the secrets of highly successful organizations. And then the last one that I, that I recommend uh, to my friends and, and folks that are in positions of authority and who are believers is, is Andy Crouch's short but lovely book, Strong and Weak. Which one of I my all-time favorites. Absolutely love. It's so good. I just reread it. It holds up. It's, it's so good. It's fantastic. Is that your favorite Crouch book? It is. Yeah. Have you read Culture Making? I have, yeah, it's been a long time. Culture making is exceptional, but strong, strong right. a week is in a league of its own. I think it just hit me at a time in a particular season where I was wrestling with that tension between authority and vulnerability. And I think for that reason, it just, it just knocked me off my feet. It's such a great framework and a simple framework to think about I it, but, but also like super matrices. deep. Two by two. I mean, give <laughs> You're me. a private equity guy. I mean, oh my come gosh. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, what one person would you most like to hear talk about the intersection of their faith and their work, maybe on this podcast? Ooh, get Jamie Smith to talk, man. I love that guy. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. All right, we'll uh, get Jamie. <laughs> and finally, what one piece of advice would you give to somebody who's pursuing mastery of the art of entrepreneurship? I think it would actually go back to what we were talking about before, which is try to find out where your weaknesses are. Be humble. Ask a lot of questions, both about your work and the work you're doing and about you as a leader, as a builder, as a master of what you're doing. Just proactively seek out and fight for people to give you the hard, true feedback that's going to help you grow. Yeah, that's real. I used to, in my quarterly reviews with my team at Threshold, I used to hold their feet to the fire and tell them one thing I could do, at least one thing I could do to be a better leader of the venture. And I would force it to be really, really critical. And it's hard to do that, right? Uh, and it's hard to hear it, especially when you're sitting face to face with somebody. But that's what masters do, right? That's what, and that's what we have the gospel for. The gospel give, allows us to do to do that, to ask those questions and hear that feedback from a position of knowing that we are safe and secure and that the Lord is, of course, going to continue to grow us. And he and we are, of course, going to continue to fail, but that does not compromise his love and, and approval of us. He's going to sanctify us, but our status is secure forever. I love it. What a glorious truth. Hey, Jeff, I just want to commend you and Joel and Jonathan for building such an exceptional company. I, the, the products are exceptional. I've had the products, but you guys are building an incredible culture. Your team is uh, seems to be incredible. The, the one time I was in the tap room, it was a pretty great experience. You guys are just building a great company and serving your neighbor through the ministry of excellence. You're loving your neighbor as yourself through the ministry of excellence and glorifying a creative God that we serve who's made all of these good things for us to enjoy. Thank you very much. Hey, next time you're in Atlanta, head over to Monday Night Brewing. You guys have two locations there two in Atlanta locations. now, right? Yep. And you one. guys are opening one up in Birmingham? We're opening one up in Birmingham early next year. Awesome. So, and next time you're in Atlanta, go hang out at Monday Night Brewing. Jeff, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Jordan. Hey guys, if you want to hear more of Jeff's story and the stories of other Christ-following masters like him, make sure you pre-order Master of One. And oh yeah, if... That conversation with Jeff isn't incentive enough to get you to pre-order. How about I buy you dinner in Barcelona and send you and a friend on a European cruise? Does that sound good? Okay, cool. So go to jordanrainer.com right now to pre-order the book and enter to win this incredible trip that we're giving away. By the way, some of you have asked, Jordan, you're not paying for this yourself, right? The publisher's paying for this. No, I'm paying for this trip, okay? Because I love La Sagrada Familia this much. I really want you guys to see this incredible church. So go pre-order the book, enter the sweepstakes at jordanrainer.com. And hey, thanks for listening to The Call to Mastery. Next week, we've got another great episode coming for you. So I'll see you there. See you next week.